Live from the Great White North, this is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. Welcome back to the Canadian Investor. My name is Simon Belanger. I'm joined by my co-host Braden Dennis. Uh, Braden, aside from the uh, cold uh, you're fighting, how's it going? It's going well, man. Yeah, if you're listening and I sound sick, that's because I am. But uh, as we discussed earlier, Simon, you can be sick in 2020 and not have that virus going around. So I'm I'm clear on that front. But uh, yeah, it's been a, it's been a rough week. But you know, I'm I'm here. The show must go on. The show exactly. must go on. Exactly. <laughs> the show must go on. And uh, so today we're going to do a mailbag episode. Uh, but before we get started, I wanted to mention uh, just a quick thing on uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. I talked about it a few episodes ago and just when it comes to taxation, so people are aware of the implications. So if you're investing directly in cryptocurrency or Bitcoin, uh, just be aware that it's essentially a the same as a non-taxable account. So if you buy the cryptocurrency, you sell it at a profit, you'll have to uh, pay taxes on capital gains. So capital gains is pretty simple. If you make $100 in profit, you'll be taxed on 50% of that at your your income tax level. So it's really important to understand that because there are tax implications um, if you do a lot of trading. And that also applies to trading within cryptocurrency. So if you're buying one cryptocurrency, so example, you're buying a Bitcoin, then you sell it to buy Ethereum, and then you resell it to buy Bitcoin again, uh, all three actions right there are taxable events. So make sure you keep that in mind. Um, I will add a link to the CRA. They actually have a really good page on cryptocurrency how it's taxed it was uh, created last year in 2019 um, so it's really really complete gives examples so at least you know what you're uh, you're getting into um, so now um, before we go to our mailbag episode uh, Braden I didn't talk about uh, with you about this before the episode but uh, did you see the big news about um, Salesforce acquiring Slack uh, I think it was made official yesterday yeah, this is a big deal, um, and I'm seeing various takes on this, but it's definitely, I think it's a good move for both companies. I think, uh, you know, they're stronger together. I think the, the vision from from CRM, Salesforce, is, is pretty good. So we'll, we'll see how, how it plays out. I know, Slack, I know some people love the Slack platform. I know a lot of people thought the bear case on the stock was that Microsoft Teams was just going to dominate it. Um, and while I think that was a little overstated, uh, I think Slack was a little undervalued, which I think is a slightly contrarian um, view uh, from most people on, on, on Slack stock. But I think a lot of people are discounting how much uh, you know the tech community uses the platform, loves the platform, and uses it to run their business. So you know, not everyone's in the Microsoft ecosystem. So I mean, I think it's a good move, and we'll we'll see we'll see how it plays out. Yeah, yeah, it's same for me. I mean, I'll, I'll be interested what how it plays out, and especially now you have two like 
two uh two huge companies that are fighting for the enterprise uh enterprise solutions in microsoft and salesforce and obviously um it'll be it'll be really interesting to see how that develops in the years to come um i think it's probably a good thing for slack just like you to be acquired by salesforce uh, salesforce and um the fact that salesforce has a good track record uh with acqui acquiring companies in the past i think uh, i would give them the be benefit of the doubt there um, for me, of course, if Slack stayed as a standalone company, I think, um, I think it would have it would have been hard for them long term to compete with Microsoft just because um, they Microsoft can push that so easily in their ecosystem. Uh, but now teaming up with Salesforce uh, will be interesting how uh, how it plays out going forward uh, for sure. Uh, Microsoft has a, a bigger competitor now. That's 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 for sure. <laughs> they do, and you know what, uh, Mark Benioff's. A a genius man he's one of the best entrepreneurs in in the states um he's worth close to 10 billion dollars and he knows what he's doing he sees slack as an opportunity to challenge big bad microsoft so uh let the games begin yeah he's he's almost as rich as you brady yeah well i got a couple <laughs> a couple billion a couple more zeros but he's close i got a okay, couple more okay. zeros um in other big acquisitions here in canada uh, today, WSP, uh, ticker WSP, the engineering firm that I've talked about before on this podcast, I own the stock, up 12% today on the news that they're buying Golder Associates, the Ontario-based massive environmental consulting firm. And uh, this is a $1.5 billion deal. Uh, WSP had been, you know, shoring up their balance sheet. They issued $600 uh, million worth of stock, I want to say three or four months ago, had all this cash and people were wondering what their next acquisition was. Well, we found out about it. Uh, they're buying Golder Associates for $1.5 billion. WSP is now the largest environmental engineering firm on the planet. So uh, this is a, now a $12 billion in market cap business, WSP. This is, this is a really big engineering firm now. So um, it's a good story out of Canada. Yeah, I, I knew. I just saw. I got an alert that their stock was up, but I was so busy today, I didn't uh, didn't have the time to look into it. So that's good. Good to know. Yeah, the deal hasn't closed at all. But um, I mean, it. I don't see why it won't happen. WSP's been making acquisitions in engineering firms all over the globe for a long time now. So this is just uh, this is a big one though, and 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 I think it makes sense. I I can see a lot of. ESG flow capital going into these types of businesses. And I think WSP is going to benefit from that. Okay, so now we'll move on to our uh, mailbag question. So, uh, or the mailbag portion of this episode. Um, you Let's start with the first question. So the first question is from Ross. Uh, Ross is asking, uh, basically, um, he has some questions about his broker. So we'll go ahead and let Ross ask his question. Hey guys, love the show. My question is, what is the best Canadian brokerage for buying U.S. stocks with respect to fees? I currently use Wealthsimple Trade. I know I'm getting burned on the extra currency conversion fees. However, with my investment approach, the $5 fee plus currency conversion of Questrade would also add up. I tend to make regular small bi-weekly purchases of stocks every paycheck. I aim to hold these stocks for a minimum of three to five years or more, so I don't sell often. 
Can you help me make sense of the math on the long-term effect of these fees? Uh, good question, Ross. Uh, first of all, good job thinking about fees. Fee, thinking about fees is kind of what brought many people to the DIY investing world. And that's because people were tired of paying high fees. So, I mean, anywhere you can limit your fees, that's a good thing. So you said you're you're using Wealthsimple um, and you're trying to figure out if what makes sense for buying U.S. stocks. So it looks like Wealthsimple has the free trades uh, for Canadian stocks. They're also missing a lot of U.S. tickers. Uh, like last time I checked, they don't even have Disney stock on there. It looks like they're adding them all the time. So like as of recording this, and that might no longer be true, but there's a lot of stocks they just don't, you can't make purchases of. Um, another thing with Wealth Symbols, they don't, you can't drip any shares. So the, the dividends can't reinvest for you. You can't have like a dividend reinvestment plan drip. Um, but that's another side note. So you're looking at this as $5 a trade and there's the Quest trade. Um, sorry, there's the Wealth Simple. Uh, conversion rate fee as well. So what I think is the best way to buy US stocks is actually using Quest Trade. One, because they have all the tickers. And you can do what's called Norbert's Gambit, uh, which is basically you're not going to pay that fee. So what Norbert's Gambit is, is Simon, there's, I, I posted a link in the notes there. You can, you can post it. I wrote a whole guide on how to do this. Essentially, what you're going to do is you're going to buy a Horizons ETF called DLR. You're going to journal it over to the states called DLR.U. This is now going to make it in U.S. dollars. You then sell it in U.S. dollars. So you only pay the one uh, sale ETF fee. And then all of a sudden you have U.S. dollars with no conversion rate fee. So if you're moving a couple thousand dollars, this is the best way to do it, in my opinion. If you want to just pay that fee, you know, the conversion fee, I mean, go ahead. That's that's fine. If, if you're moving a ton of money, I recommend using Norbert's Gambit, which is kind of like the elite way to move uh, Canadian dollars into U.S. dollars. This is what I personally do. Um, so there's a guide I, I wrote about this. You can look at it. At the end of the day, um, you know, there, there are fees to investing um, when it comes to making trades if you want to buy U.S. stocks. So don't worry about it long term. What's going to matter more is making good decisions, holding on to your stocks for the long term, thinking like an owner and, and don't interrupt that compounding period. That's going to really make a difference for you. Yeah, and... Uh like I totally agree with what Braden just said, and I wasn't uh, like as well versed on uh, Wealth Simple specifically, so I didn't know they had uh, limitations on the amount of uh, like securities that are listed on there. Um, if you want to understand the impact of what it can have long term, uh, you can just you know look at like essentially the dollar value that it's costing you in fees every time that you convert that money, and then just you know extrapolate that money and uh, over with the con with the uh, a compound calculator and you put a certain investment return percentage and you can have a look of what the long-term impact would be of uh, paying those fees if you want to wrap your head around it. We got another question here. Uh, Stefan from Ottawa. Uh, he's wondering about some investment stakes. So here's Stefan from Ottawa. 
Hey guys, um, my name is Stefan. I'm from Ottawa and I have a question for uh, Braden and Simon. Um, what are some investment mistakes, uh, if any, that costed you a significant loss in capital in the stock market? Whether it be uh, speculative plays, overlooks in your research and due diligence, or even some YOLO bets, as they call it. You two give the impression that your worst investments are simply missing out on certain names that skyrocketed legitimately. Um, you guys are awesome. Love listening to the to these insightful episodes. Thank you and stay safe out there. Okay, great question, Stefan. So uh, yes, we do talk about investment mistakes and a lot of the time we do talk about stocks that uh, we missed out on. Uh, but fear not, um, I have made my fair shares of uh, mistake investing. Uh, I've taken some pretty big losses. Um, so I'll just go over a few of them. Um, but I have like, there's more than that in my portfolio. The reason it's easy to look at investment mistakes with investment that you lost um, on your capital invest. Um, it might also be considered a mistake if you've actually profited from the investment, but is it has lagged uh, the index that you're tracking. So personally, I like to look at the S&P 500 in terms of my investment returns, how they compare to that. So it doesn't mean that, you know, you have to put things in perspective. So just some examples of uh, what I've lost when I was investing. Um, so when I started investing, when I was uh, about 18 or 19, I've said this before, um, I invested in a junior miner uh, named Tahira Diamonds. Um, that was probably like 20 years ago now. And I invested about $2,000. And it was just based on of a friend of a friend who uh, said like, oh, they found diamonds in this uh, uh, Northwest Territory mine. And, uh, you know, they're going to make a killing. It was a penny stock. I got all excited, put my money. Well, don't you say a few years later, they couldn't get financing anymore. Um, they never got diamonds out of the ground, filed for bankruptcy lost my $2,000, which obviously at the time was a lot of money for me because I was uh, 18. Another example of mistake I made earlier this year, so I had uh, invested in JD.com. Um, I still made a really good return. Uh, I beat the S&P 500 with it. Um, I sold it at $40 a share uh, just before the pandemic started because I thought that they would have some issues with logistics with the pandemic, but also I was a bit kind of scared or if you'd like about like the uncertainty of investing in China and I I wasn't sure if I could trust the numbers of JD.com so that was the other reason so I ended up making about 80% returns on that investment because my uh, cost was in the low 20s um, but if I kept it now it's worth in the 80s so um, that's an investment mistake in my book right there um, I lost about 50% uh, in Usky Energy a few years ago. I invested in that, sold about a year ago. Um, just I've talked about it before. I don't really believe in oil stocks anymore. So that was the main reason. I mean, I'm glad I sold. It would be even lower right now. Um, so in hindsight, I guess it was still a good decision to sell that. Um, I did sell some Teladoc uh, maybe a year, year and a half ago because I needed to pad my emergency fund. So I sold in the, uh, in the 70s. 
if you uh, look at their stock right now it's close to $200 but again I don't really see that one as big of a mistake in hindsight it's easy to say that it was a mistake but at the time I think it was the right decision for me and I was uh, at peace with that decision regardless where the stock went um, I lost 35% in investment in Kinder Morgan uh, which I sold recently in September for same type of reason as Husky Energy and uh, I also lost 50% on Baidu when I started investing a bit more seriously about four or five years ago uh, didn't really do my due diligence on that uh, and then the stock dropped uh, they completely shattered their guidance and I decided again with the China factor that I wanted to get out so those are some of my mistakes there's other ones but the big thing for me is that my winners really outweigh my mistakes and I've been beating this S&P 500 since I've uh, started investing and uh, tracking my returns so, uh, Braden, do you have a few? I know I, I probably, it seems like I have a few more than you do. Yeah, well, I have a couple, but I, I just wanted to to touch on what you just said because you mentioned five mistakes you've made, um, and some of them were you sold some stuff too early. You interrupted the compounding unnecessarily, which Charlie Munger says you should never do. And then three of them, are you lost money on commodity businesses and yeah, this just speaks <laughs> this just speaks right to a hard pill to swallow is that canadians are heavily overweight materials and oil it's just a fact our sect our our industries and our uh, index is overweight banking and commodities and commodities as a business is just not as superior to businesses that have pricing power businesses that have pricing power are just better it's just how it is and if there is a massive rebound in the price of the commodity and you do well all that's great all power to you but when it when it doesn't perform and the price of that commodity that you cannot predict goes down, that business just can't perform well, can't improve cash flows, can't improve earnings because they don't have any control on their input and outputs. And that's just not ideal long term. So I think there's a learning lesson there. Um, for me, I'm a little bit luckier because I started purely with index investing. So I got some experience in the market like a couple of years without even buying a stock that was not tracking an index. So I'm like a really old man. Like here I am at 18 years old and I'm like due diligently only investing in index funds. That being said, uh, you know, a couple of years later, I, I was like, you know, I, I feel like I, I can pick a couple names. Sure thing. And you know what I did, which you see a lot of new investors do, is hit a stock screener and sort by the fattest, fattest of the dividend yields you can find. This is classic. New investors sorting for low PEs and high dividend ratio, uh, dividend yields. And I came up with a little MLP, like a, a limited partnership business called McKenzie Master, which now trades for 92 cents. Uh, it's a penny stock. It yielded 23% because um, it's an MLP and they have to pay out a whole, like almost all the earnings at the dividend. 
uh, the stock went up like 11% in the, in the like eight months I held it. And I've got like a 20% dividend yield. And I realized that it was completely, completely idiotic and I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and so I, I actually, this was not a expensive mistake, but it's like, what, what on earth was I doing? I had no idea what I was buying. Uh, zero quality to the name. I think that it's gone down to 92 cents now. So I got lucky, but you know, know what you own and don't go to a stock screener and score by, sort by dividend yield. This is a horrible idea. Horrendous idea. Um, a couple other mistakes. I don't, I don't know if I can call them mistakes, but you know, I, I bought allied properties, which is a fantastic real estate investment trust. Uh, they own the best properties here in Toronto, uh, well-run company. They pay a nice growing distribution yield, very quality properties. Um, and I just don't want to be in anything pure play commercial real estate um, in an area of the world that has the most condos and real estate space for sale on, in the world. Um, the No one wants this right now. So it's on the wrong side of a secular trend, and I just decided to uh, to cut bait on that one. Now, my biggest mistake is something that I never bought, which means it didn't cost me anything, but this is my biggest mistake, is that in 2015, I thought Shopify was overvalued. Um, I couldn't have been more wrong, and I was vocal about it. I was like the worst guy to talk to a party about about stocks because I would tell you Shopify is overrated um, or overvalued when everyone is making a whole bunch of money on it. And what I've learned the like the biggest learning lesson from really really great businesses with really really high growth rates and very strong you know management like Tobias Lutke's he's the man. I mean he's. He's an unbelievable CEO of Shopify and uh, has a good vision. And it's it's just a flat-out mistake that I thought this business was overvalued. Um, I, wasn't, I wasn't looking at the importance of the difference between a business being highly valued and overvalued. Those two things not being equal, I think, is my biggest 2020 takeaway. Um, and... I've had years to buy Shopify, and uh, here I am. I still don't own it. So, you know, hopefully I don't continue to make this mistake, but it's hard. At 55, whatever it is, times sales, it's it's hard to understand. Um, but I think before when it was, you know, 10x smaller and the, the revenue growth rate was just astronomic, I think it was, I think it was a mistake. So there's, there's yeah. one for me. Yeah. And I mean, for me, like you touch a great point too, as long as you learn from your mistakes. So there's a reason why I don't really invest in, uh, in energy sector, but specifically cyclical, um, and, uh, like natural resources is because there's so many things that are out of your control or commodities. Um, so, I mean, I learned from it and a lot of these mistakes that I did were related to that. So there, that's one of the reasons I don't really touch those anymore. Um, so I think we've, We've covered this question, so uh, not to worry, Stefan. We do have uh, we've made our fair share of mistakes, and like we said, as long as you can learn from that, that's the important thing. 
Um, so our third question is Philip from Sudbury. So Philip was wondering uh, why we didn't have Canadian stocks in our 15 stock basket from last week. Canadian so, um, banking stocks. Yeah, that's right. 15 uh, for Canadian banking stocks. So here's uh, Philip's question. Hey guys, my name is Philip. I'm from Sudbury, Ontario. Uh, I just listened to your episode about the 15 um, stocks um, to start with if you're a beginner. And I consider myself a beginner. Um, I have a basket of about five to six stocks. Um, but I'm curious as to why you do not mention any banking stocks. Um, so I know that Canadian banks are, are kind of a, the staple of the Canadian economy. And for most banks, you know, they, they count as a steady dividend and uh, steady growth and all this. And they, they seem fairly stable. Um, I'm just curious as uh, to your reasoning as to why you chose not to include some in, in your episode and what your general opinion is on the Canadian banking sector. Thank you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start this one, Simon. This is a really good question because I thought about this and I thought, you know what? Uh I think there's, there there could have been room for a Canadian bank there, but let me let me just go with this first thing to think about is these are just you know some great ideas that Simon and I think are fantastic businesses, and I want people to understand that that's a pretty growth oriented portfolio um, for people who have long runways of growth. Now, if you're looking for something like a bank that pays a fat, juicy dividend yield, that's stable, growing, good business, that probably serves a great purpose in many, many kinds of portfolios. And what I, what, it, what the point of this is, is that not everyone's playing the same game as you. And you need to measure the, the, the measuring stick by what game you are playing. If your goal is to get a nice dividend yield and you don't need huge capital gains, then banking stocks are money. They're perfect for that. Uh, Canadian banking stocks are, you know, probably, you know, type 1A of this type of, of income that you're seeking. These are great businesses for that. So understand that not everyone's playing the same game. Um, and if you want to be in, businesses that make sense for your goals, then do that. That makes sense. These are just really good ideas from Simon and I, but I mean, I own TD bank. This is, you could, you could throw that in the, in the list. No problem. What were you thinking, Simon? Yeah. I mean, uh, a lot of the things you said, so a lot of the the companies we were looking at were looking, you know, far out into the future. Um, we did have some exposure to the financial markets through, obviously, some of the payment processors. Um, and I mean, there's some reason I didn't pick any. Um, so I'm going to go through quickly. Um, first of all, they tend to be cyclical. So they kind of come and go with the economy. Um, they... Not all banks are created the same. So we did an episode, I, it has to be about a month ago or so, uh, we were talking a bit more about uh, banks in general. And, you know, there's all different types of banks. Some have more exposure to mortgages. Some are more commercial banks that will lend to different sectors of the economy. Um, some are more focused on investment banking. So depending on how the economy is doing um, and how their loans are doing, the bank will be, you know, or the returns will be kind of, 
tied to that. Um, right now, the reason also I'm a bit reluctant for banks is there's definitely some risk of defaults for their loans. Um, there's currently, especially in the consumer banking, there's a lot of deferrals. So I read a very, um, very interesting article uh, recently that came out or data that came out from Equifax Canada. And it said that more than 3 million uh, Canadian consumers had uh, deferred payments on debt one way or another. Um, so deferral, what happens is they don't show as delinquency because they're deferred, but the interest still accrues. So people are still on the hook for those loans. So it kind of skews the data right now. So that's definitely a risk uh, for banks in general. Um, like Braden said, um, I do own TD as well. Um, I do like TD because it does have exposure to the US, Canada, it also has an investment division. So it gives you a bit more diversification there. Um, the last thing I was going to say, if you hold a kind of Canadian all index ETF, you're going to have a lot of exposure to Canadian banks and like Braden said, energy as well. Um, if you're looking to just hold the seven banks in Canada, um, I found an interesting ETF. It's ZEB. It's a Canadian ETF. The um, Management expense ratio is not super low, so it's 0.6%, but it has pretty much all the seven big Canadian banks, so there's only seven holdings, and they're very closely equal weighted, like there's a couple percentage point in between each, but if you're looking to get exposure through that, that that would be an option, and it does have a pretty juicy dividend yield at 4.8%. Yeah, you you could certainly go that route. We, we've talked about the banks. They have, you know, that core retail banking segment. And then you got to look at all of them and think, okay, they all have that core retail banking segment. What else is it that they went and pursued for growth? Um, I personally think the biggest two, TD and Royal Bank, are the best businesses because of their capital markets and U.S. exposure, but you know, uh, you could just go with the ZEB. Is that the ticker you mentioned? And yeah, and just own yeah. all of them. But like, like, like Simon said, if you own the Canadian index, like a Vanguard VCN, the ETF, seventeen percent of VCN is only two stocks, which is Royal Bank and TD. So you're you're seeing that weighting being very high on some of those top names because they're market cap weighted. So last time I checked, Royal Bank and TD Bank make up 17% of the index. So um, if, you can underst- if you can understand that math, then uh, you'll know that if you own a Canadian index, you're going to own lots of banking. So uh, if that's what you want to do, you know, think about the game that, yeah, think about the game that you're playing and if that accomplishes uh, your goals. Um, we have another question here. Uh, let's just let this one play. This is from Sean. Uh, he's got a question for us. Hey guys. Um, regarding your last podcast, I noticed that a lot of your top stock picks are actually, um, traded in the States and in us dollars. And from my understanding, um, if you're trading within a tax free savings account, you're not going to be benefiting from, um, the perks that that account can provide. So I guess my question would be, would it be, um, Better to trade a stock um, in U.S. dollars through your tax-free savings account or trying to find a Canadian equivalent of that company and trade uh, that company in Canadian dollars. Thanks. 
Yeah, good good question, uh, Sean. The I just want to really quickly clarify. You mentioned uh, you know tax efficiency of holding U.S. stocks in a TFSA. So let's just clear that piece up immediately. You are only taxed on the dividend in a TFSA for U.S. listed stocks. I'm going to repeat that. You are only taxed on something called withholding tax on the dividend of 15%. So if you own a stock that's U.S. listed in a TFSA that pays a dividend, 15% of that dividend will be taxed in something called withholding tax. So it's only 15% of the dividend. Capital gains are not taxed. So the TFSA is actually very tax efficient for both Canadian and U.S. stocks. Um, assuming it's not a you know, super high-yielding dividend stock, I don't think you have too much to worry about. And I think that they're, it's a good place to hold U.S. stocks in a TFSA. Generally, is it is a TFSA. Um, Simon, that, that, that clears it up, right? It's, it's somewhat yeah. of a confusing topic, but if you can understand it's just the dividend, it makes it a lot easier. Yeah, exactly. And if you're looking to have uh, hold a U.S. stock that has a big dividend, uh, then the RSP RSP is definitely a better option for you because there is a tax treaty for retirement accounts, and the RSP is considered a retirement account, whereas that's right, the TFSA is not. So uh, definitely, you'll want to hold those in your RSP, and that's what I personally do. Um, and just like Braden said, there's really no problem holding U.S. stocks in your TFSA as long as they don't really pay much of a dividend. If they do a small one, um, it's really not a problem. It'll be tax-free if you sell at a profit for your capital gains. Um, And you also mentioned your question whether you should be looking for U.S. equivalent companies in Canada. Uh, So companies that would be similar in Canada to the U.S. And, you know, that's not a bad approach for certain type of companies. Like we just talked about banks. Obviously, if you're going to hold banks in your TFSA, you you should hold Canadian banks. If you want to hold U.S. banks, you should put them in your RSP. So that's an easy option for that one. But a lot of businesses, unfortunately, that you find in the U.S., you will not find a Canadian equivalent and you're really limiting yourself to a smaller basket of stocks if you're trying to do that. Um, There's so many sectors in Canada that are really underweighted in the Canadian stock market. Um, Tech is not that big in Canada. We do have some tech plays. I know Braden knows all about them. I do a decent amount as well, but Healthcare sector is also underweight in Canada. Um, so there's definitely some sectors where if you want exposure, you're probably going to have to invest, uh, especially if you want exposure in specific companies, you're going to have to invest in U.S. stocks. Yeah, that's that's it right there, right? Is do not fall victim of what is called in the Canadian capital markets as Canadian home bias which is the concept that many Canadians are very overweight Canadian stocks. Um, And as a result of that, they are very heavily weighted banking and energy. Um, And and 
in commodities, you know, these types of businesses that make up a very large portion of the index. So many of the best businesses just don't trade on exchanges outside of internationally or on the US. So that's just a, a, a real hard fact that you need to understand. That doesn't mean you can't own Canadian stocks. I own Canadian stocks. I own plenty of them. I own plenty of Canadian I own two Canadian tech stocks that only trade in Canada. And I wouldn't have it any other way because I'm getting that alpha because the American investors don't even look at it. So there is many great Canadian businesses, but I would not take the approach of, look at this awesome company here in the States that's scaled globally. Is there a, you know, a, a household name equivalent here? Uh, probably not a, a good way to, to go. But, um, so you're saying yeah. uh, I should not swap my Teladoc shares for well-held technology? Is that it, Brayden? Zing! <laughs> there it is. Boom. Good job, Simon. <laughs> thank um, you, thank you. Yeah, yeah the, those businesses are not aligned. Go ahead and check their gross margins, and you'll find about 50% difference. Um, okay, so we do have another question. Uh, we weren't sure if we we're going to get to all these, but I think we're good, Simon. We can keep going. We had a question um, about ESG, so let's let's play that. Hey guys, love the show. Uh, my question relates to the big ESG sustainability push that we're seeing in a lot of companies. I'm just wondering how you gauge the validity of these companies. Uh, for example, a company like Enbridge and their promised renewable energy transition. Uh, they're invested in something like 22 wind farms and six solar energy operations. Do you perceive this as following a trend, or can some of these large Canadian energy companies actually transition smoothly? Good question, sir. Um, fantastic question, Simon. Did you do you have any quick notes on this? Because I think this is ESG is is, is here to stay in my eyes. So I'm wondering if you have any hot takes on this. Yeah, so I started doing uh, research on ESG uh, maybe a month or two ago, and um, I know at work we were looking as well uh, with my employer, we're looking about offering a certain ESG fund, and the reality is a lot of funds that are labeled as ESG are not really that focus on environmental, social, and governance part, um, so that's what ESG stands for uh, in case someone... Uh, some of you weren't aware. Um, so, but it's definitely gaining popularity. Um, there are uh, some resources you can find. There's the UN uh, that do has uh, that does have um, some ESG resources. Um, I don't have the exact website in front of me. Uh, there's another, um, I think, organization as well that has ESG resources for investors. Um, what you need to really realize is it's you have to do a lot of digging if you want to look at companies that uh, you know are trying to do more on the ESG basis and there's really different ways of viewing it so you might look at might want to invest for example in the oil sector but you want the top company in the oil sector in terms of ESG it might not be super logical when you think about it but that could be the way that someone who's looking to invest in oil but wants to do it in a more responsible manner uh, but again there's all, all sorts of sectors that you can look at from the ESG lens um, 
it's it's really i mean it can be quite complex and you know it can be really time consuming especially if you're looking into specific businesses and understanding what they're doing um but i think we could even do a full episode eventually on that i definitely have to do personally have more research on it to be able to elaborate more than this yeah no no worries i i got some fiery fiery hot flaming takes so it's all good um for those who don't know, I'm an environmental engineer, um, and I still work as an environmental engineer. And ESG, unfortunately, has developed into uh, various funds trying to track what they classify as companies that are environmentally, socially responsible and have good governance. So ESG, environment, uh, sorry, yeah, environment, social governance. And what has happened is you get a bunch of finance folks in one room quantifying something that's very technical, which is, you know, climate change and, you know, these kinds of things. So what has happened is these big ETFs that track ESG investing for those who want, you know, socially responsible investing, they don't want to be contributing to climate change through their capital. That's all good. That's in good intention. But if you look, if you are in one of these funds, and if you look them up, you know, Vanguard and BlackRock, they have them, they have them as products available, go into the top 10 holdings. And you're going to find basically the S&P 500 or like the NASDAQ 100 replicated market cap weighted. Okay, so if if your ESG fund shining star number one by market cap position is Facebook, then we need to reevaluate the whole thing. And this is seen everywhere. And the 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 logic behind that is, well, Facebook doesn't have a lot of high emissions because they don't generate emissions through you know large oil um, processes and, you know, they don't have these stacks that are emitting carbon. Sure, maybe, maybe that's true. But they are not positive net impact to this problem. They're not making a positive net impact and being leaders in reducing our dependency on carbon emitting economy so just look at it and know that it's still very early. It has a lot of problems. And the, the, to answer your question more directly, you, you mentioned Enbridge. Some of these companies are on the ball. So contrary to a lot of the ESG funds, a company like Enbridge that you mentioned that you wouldn't find on these ESG uh, funds because they emit so many car- so much carbon by being you know a natural gas supplier, they're not going to be on there. But they're doing the most net net to make a difference because they're investing in cleaner fuels. They're investing in pivoting their their uh, business to renewables and to cleaner processes and cleaner natural gas. They're actually making a net positive impact versus some technology company that yeah they're emissions isn't inherent to what they do, but it doesn't mean that they're making a net positive impact. So just think about that, right? 
um, and think about a lot of these funds and how they're, you know, really just a marketing ploy to get capital when the holdings are available, you know, in the prospectus. You can go on there if you're in one of these ETFs, check it out and look at the holdings and think to yourself, what's really going on here, right? So that's that's what I want you to, to leave you with is think about what is the positive net impact of this business? Are they doing real things to combat climate change or are they just in a business that's getting thrown in this basket because they don't emit heavily? So uh, yeah. that, that's my answer to the question. Yeah, and I mean, I can really tell you're an uh, environmental engineer because you didn't really touch on the social and uh, governance part. <laughs> <laughs> but no, those are two important things. So That's you a wanna, good point. Okay, yeah, the well, social. Well, well, hear me out then. Is Facebook just a shining star in social governance? No, exactly. Oh and, goodness, uh, social and governance, and those are really important, and they can be hard to quantify too. Just like Braden said, especially the social impact. So and the hard governance. to quantify. The governance aspect that I find you can spot a bit more if the governance looks all out of whack when it comes to the governance of the business. So, you know, it can be just how the, the voting works for shareholders it could be just the uh, the amount of power that um, or the remuneration of the um, the top executive, then things like that. And so those are things that you can probably spot a bit easier and some really good resources. I mean, there's a site and it's really extensive, so I haven't finished uh, digging in to it is uh, what I was mentioning earlier. So it's uh, PRI. Uh, so it's a UN organization. So you can go at unpri.org and uh, they'll be able, I'll put the uh, link in the show notes, but uh, they kind of give a good framework how to invest uh, you know, with a ESG perspective. So they do mention a lot of the things that we just mentioned where, you know, a lot of these funds are not really ESG focused and you can really scratch your head just looking at the, the holdings and wonder why they're there. Uh, but that's an interesting uh, way to start and just get some resources on that. Uh, but I think we probably could do a full episode on this, Braden, to be honest. Oh, yeah, you'll get me going too, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, guys, that does it for this episode. Thank you for putting up with my uh, very congested voice. Hopefully next week I'll be back at 100%. Uh, GetStockMarket.com, as always, has uh, a link to Stratosphere where you can get all the data from where we talk about all these companies. When we talk about growth rates, when we talk about valuation multiples, we talk about their financial statements. You can graph them all 10 years out with uh, the Stratosphere software. Uh, it's pretty powerful. Um, and also, on the Anchor link, you can get one of these cool recorded questions. You'll probably be on the show. Chances are you'll be on the show. So uh, those links are all there, as well as the Norbert's Gambit link there for Trade. If you don't have a Trade account, you can use SI50. It stands for Stratosphere Investing, but it's SI50. And that'll give you $50 in free trade com- trade uh, credit. And uh, it supports us as well. So it's kind of a win-win. All right, guys. We'll see you next week. Take care. Bye-bye. The Canadian investor is not to be taken as investment advice. Braden or Simone may own securities mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment decisions.